As Jim has said, our passage is Psalm 27 of David. The light is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though the war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been, oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, that they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take refuge. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. One theologian called the book of Psalms just a, a book that's an anatomy of the soul, that in this book you have uh, something that's written for all portions of life and existence, for the anatomy of our inner being, the things that are going on there. And, and one of those places that, that we have inside of us is constantly working our, is the place of where we find our, our greatest confidence and, and where we find our greatest desire. Uh, how we overcome our fears by those confidences and how we live life in light of those confidences or fears is going to matter immensely. How do we carry ourselves in order of these desires? Because our greatest desires and our greatest fears and our greatest confidences are going to be the things that shape our daily and practical living. And Psalm 27, as part of this anatomy of the soul given to us in the, the Psalter, directs our attention at these very things within us, these confidences, these desires. How, how do we overcome fear? How, how do we live a life of confidence in the Lord? How do you reorder disordered desires or half-hearted desires and live with a desire for the Lord and Him alone? Well, that's what Psalm 27 focuses on. It focuses attention on the core of our being, where we find our deepest confidences, where we find our deepest desires, and it shows us what David shows us, that his deepest confidence and his deepest desires were for the Lord. And in doing this, it shows us this path too. 
A path where we have our deepest confidence in the Lord. That's the path to overcoming all fears in our life. A path of igniting and reordering our desires so that we might have this one burning desire, this overwhelming desire, desire for the Lord. This psalm should, this focus of the psalm on confidence and desire should propel us to be a people who know how to overcome fear by placing our deepest confidence and fullest confidence in the Lord. Who know how to reorder our desires as we seek the Lord as our greatest desire. And it does all this, like many of the Psalms, through the writer of David. He reveals his confidence and his desire. And he begins and ends with this, um, this is of the Lord, this is of David, verse 1, the Lord, and he's going to end in the same way, marking this off as a section. And he begins and he's going to end in the same way with expression of confidence in this Lord. And he does it, First off in verse 1, with some helpful, deep, poetic language, this image of the Lord as, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In the Old Testament, light is all over the place, all over the place throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, you you remember right at the beginning, this is the first reference to light. In the beginning was the Lord, and, and there's darkness over the face of the earth, and he says, let there be light. So there, in the very beginning, God is not only the source of light, He is the one who creates light, and that light from the beginning, from creation, is life-giving. You you could move forward in the story in the Old Testament a little bit, and you have this unique use of that word light in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 13. The, the people of Israel being led out of Egypt, and how are they being led? They have this pillar of fire that's, that's lighting their way. There's light leading them onward. And what's interesting is that in chapter 14, the, the light, who's this angel of the Lord leading them, actually moves behind them and separates them from the people of Egypt, and there's still this light there. So light is, is there to both lead and direct their path. They can see where they're going. They know how to follow. And it gives them protection from their enemies. And so light, in summary, could be life-giving, leading, directional, protecting, and all of its sources all from God. And that is abundantly evident. We, we can also think about that word light in the moral sense. That, that there's a sense of understanding and knowledge that has moral implications to it. You, you think of Psalm 43.3. This is David in despair. And he says, send out your light and your what? Your truth. You know, they're connected. They, they, they show us how to live in a way that would be honoring, pleasing to the Lord. That's walking in the light. Or Psalm 119, verse 105, talks about your word being a lamp. There's light image to my feet, a light unto my path. that shows us how to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. And so light is life-giving. It gives direction and leading and protection, and its source is from God. And all those things are, are in a physical sense, yes, but, but in a moral sense as well. And what this image does for David is, is he says, this, the Lord is my light, and it gives him this great sense of confidence. That if I have light, I know the right direction. I know the right way. I can see clearly. I'm protected from threats. I I can see what's ahead of me and behind me. And and because of that, there's great confidence. Now, implied in these verses and in this image of light is darkness. And darkness, doesn't it work just the opposite way? And it's implied all through this that without light... 
There's only darkness where you don't know the way. Have you been to a cave where they take you down into the depths and then they tell you, cover your phone and your watch or whatever. They take all light from you so that you can experience, maybe for the first time, just total darkness. And they'll say stuff like, wave your hand in front of you. You, you, have no, you can't see a thing. Now, some of you, that's like your worst fear. Like, I'm in a cave and I can't see a thing. And, and it would be pretty overwhelming. Darkness is a place of fear. Which way is the way out? Where is the danger? Are, are bats flying at me? Where are the spiders creeping along the, the floor of this cave? Am I going to walk into a, a, a deep, dark hole that's going to, you know, I'm going to fall into an abyss? Am I going to hit my head on a rock? All of those things are unknown, and even the unknown in the darkness may be more overwhelming than all those other things. That's what darkness does. And without the light, there's no leading. There's no direction. There's, there's no confidence that we can get out of here. There's no understanding. There's no truth. There's no protection. And, and David is saying, that's life without the Lord. But David is confident in the Lord because he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And so he questions, verse 1, whom shall I fear? And the implied answer is, of course, none. With the Lord's life-giving leadership and protection and direction, who is there to fear? What is there? to fear. As God created light and nothing could stop it from happening, so he's also salvation that if he sends out light and it cuts him through anything he sends it to, so he can send out salvation the same way. And so the same way that God is light, God is salvation, nothing can stop him. So when David says, he is my light and my salvation, he's talking about something that is unstoppable that's always going to take care of him in the right exact ways. It will be able to save. Nothing can withhold this light and nothing can withhold God's salvation from breaking through. And so David asks, well, who should I fear? And the answer is, of course, well, if that's true of God, then nothing is to be feared. Further, he goes on, verse 1, that the Lord is his stronghold, is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? As the light implied some darkness, here we also see the stronghold implies some places where you're not in a stronghold. Places of, of vulnerability, places where you're exposed to all kinds of danger. I, I think of the three little pigs. They were shoved out of mom's house and told, like, go make some shelters. You're on your own now. And two of them choose pretty foolishly. They choose to build their shelters out of straw and one builds it out of sticks like those are kinds of substances that if you put up are not going to keep a ferocious wolf out of your your residence but there's one pig that's a little bit smarter and he builds his house out of something that will be able to withstand the attack of a ferocious enemy because the first two houses were hay and sticks those two pigs should have had reason to be afraid that if a ferocious wolf comes along and wants some bacon it's going to get through those structures. Indeed, many of us would probably do the same. If we're hungry enough and we want some bacon, like hay and sticks are not going to stop us, we're going for it, right? But the third little pig, he builds his house strongly. And because he has that stronghold, if a ferocious enemy comes, he has reason to not fear. He can stand against a ferocious enemy. And David is saying that the Lord is my stronghold. He is this place of 
refuge, of safety, that even if a ferocious enemy should come, that I don't have a reason to be afraid even there because the Lord, my stronghold, is stronger than that ferocious enemy. And if that's true of the Lord, then many ferocious enemies may try to tear down his life, but whom shall he be afraid? He says that none of them. That the Lord who created all things, who called the people, who redeemed them out of Egypt, who defeated their enemies in front of them and planted them in the promised land, who ascended David to the very throne that he sits at as king over Israel, that God, the one who has kept him and sustained him, that God is his stronghold. If that's his stronghold, then whom should he fear? He shouldn't be afraid of anything. One enemy can come against such a stronghold. And notice the pattern that he uses here in verse 1. He gives a statement of who the Lord is, and then he asks a question. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's taking the truth of who God is to his fears. And he's asking something of himself. What, what shall I be afraid here? Whom shall I fear here? There's real darkness. There's real fears. There are real places of exposure and vulnerability. There are real reasons to be afraid. But to the reality of the darkness, to the reality of exposure, he brings the reality of who God is into those places and says, here's the answer to all my greatest fears there. And it is the Lord. And no matter what our fears are, the, the answer to our biggest fears is the Lord. Fear. If we think about fear simply, fear is thinking about something else as bigger. In, in theological terms, if fear is thinking about something else as bigger than God. And he's just rehearsing. Here's who God is. He's my light. He's my salvation. He's my stronghold. Nothing is bigger than that. And so what does that mean? Those fears aren't fierce anymore because he's bigger than all of those things. And so he takes something bigger to his fears. He takes God to his fears. And he does this in this pattern that assaults any claims that he should be afraid in our lives, there's, there's no denying that there's real fear, real reasons to be afraid. But to the multitude of our fears, there's really one true answer, one thing that is bigger than all of those things, and that is the Lord. Is that the answer you're bringing to your fears? That the Lord is this, so I shouldn't be afraid. That the Lord is this, so I shouldn't fear. Here's some... The book of Psalms is doing that. Psalm 27 is doing that. And over and over again in the book of Psalms, you see it addressed. Fear is all over the place because it comes up so much in our souls. All of these fears, all kinds of reasons for fears. And over and over again, the answer to those fears in the book of Psalms is abundantly clear. It is the Lord. We should take the truth of who God is to our fears in prayer and in singing as the Psalms do. David, he uses some really great logic here. All right, the Lord is this. Let's reason this out. If he's this, then what should I think of this? Oh, this is bigger than this, so I shouldn't fear this, right? That's what he's doing here in prayer. He is rehearsing these truths about who God is, the truth in prayer. He brings it to his fear, and he says, one is bigger, so I shouldn't fear. And that's the path. That's the path to living a life in, of confidence in the Lord. That's the path to living a life without fear in this world that's full of all kinds of things that really could be things that we could be afraid of. It's to bring the truth of who God is uh, to bear on those places and say, which one is bigger? Think and pray about who God is, that he is this one who is our light and salvation, the stronghold of our lives, and take those things to our fears. Even pray these very words that David has written out for us in verse 1. 
It's good to ask these questions. Think about who God is and say, well, well, whom should I be afraid then? And reflect and think about who God is and those things in light of who God is. Ask those questions. And we need to ask them because verses 2 and 3 are coming. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. David is greatly confident here. These are real large fears and, and things to worry about here. Armies and evildoers, they're serious. And, and he has great confidence in, in the face of those kinds of things. Now, what he does here is, is he imagines, some probably for him, these were probably some real situations, but they seem to be like almost extreme, maybe even a bit unrealistic in some ways. Maybe they're how they're, he's imagining him in, in terms of his imagination. He might be imagining like worst case scenario. But they're not unrealistic for his life, not unrealistic for the people of God's lives. In verse 2, it says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, is he speaking about like this threat of real cannibals coming to him, like I'm going to rip you apart and, and chew you up? Is that what's going on here? I, I, I don't know. It's possible that he had some enemies like that. You, you think of the book of Samuel where he writes about this, one place I could write about that he writes about this in in David and Goliath's story, do you remember what Goliath says? Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to eat up your flesh, but he says, hey, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to let the birds eat your flesh. Maybe he has that kind of thing in mind when he's saying this. So this is not an unrealistic threat to him. And the picture is of evildoers and enemies. There are these wild beasts that are surrounding David, seeking to devour him. Or verse 3, here's an army surrounding him, trying to bring him down, get to his demise. And both of these, again, were realistic Worst case kind of scenarios for David. And what does he meet him with in verses 2 and 3? Confidence in the Lord. He, he meets those scenarios with no fear. Now, I don't know what your worst case scenario is, but in it, whatever that thing is, maybe it's the darkness of that cave, maybe it is cannibals surrounding you. I don't know what your worst case scenario is, but in it, could you say what David says? Yet, I will be confident? Will there be no fear in that place? And the only way to get there is to have verse 1 and to hold on to verse 1 very tightly. That the Lord is my light and my salvation. That the Lord is my stronghold. That's how you can get to this place where you can say armies can surround me and yet I will be confident because my confidence isn't in me and in my circumstance, it's in the Lord. Confidence in the Lord, it's coming in for David through the knowledge of who God is and that he's bigger than all of those things, mighty armies, ferocious enemies, mightier than all his fears. And so in the midst of those things, he can say things like, yet I will be confident. Now, not only does he have confidence in the Lord, but he also seeks the Lord as his greatest desire. The Lord is his greatest confidence, and now he's going to share in verse 4 that the Lord is also his greatest desire. Verse 4, one thing that I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing. Now, there's a singleness of purpose, the singleness of desire within him. And it is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now in verse 4, he uses this word house, house of the Lord, he also uses the word temple. In, in verse five, 5, he's going to say he's going to hide me in his shelter and under the cover of his tent. He's also going to use that word tent in verse 6. When David was around, you might remember that 
He didn't see the, the building and the, the finished product of Solomon's great temple that would have amazed many just by its sight. He, he mostly knew of God as in a tent. Like that was where the presence of God dwelled in the midst of his people when David was around. And that's what house and temple and shelter and tent are all pointing at. One commentator says it this way, together they express in common the one privileged thought that Yahweh, the Lord, actually localized himself in an earthly address, that God truly was dwelling in the midst of his people. And so when he's saying, here's one thing I want, here's one thing I desire, here's my greatest desire, and he talks about the house of the Lord and the temple of the Lord, he's talking about the presence of God in the midst of his people. That's what he wants. David wasn't concerned about a precise description of that physical place. He changes it from house to temple to tent. What he is concerned about so clearly in this psalm and in this verse is God's presence. That's what he's after. So when he says, verse 4, this is what I desire, what I'm going to seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, he's not wanting, I don't think, to take up residence in the temple or in that tent. I don't think he's wanting to shift his occupation from being the king to being a priest and doing priestly service at those places. What he wants is God. And he says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of God. I want to inquire into the temple of the Lord. Both of those gazing and inquiring, they, they get this idea that he uses here of, of seeking. I'm going to seek this. Seeking the Lord. That's what he wants. I want to seek the presence of the Lord. His first desire, behold God's beauty and ask or inquire in his temple. That is to know his mind, his will, what he's like, his character and his nature. That's what he wants. Gaze and inquire. They, they relay that the David's greatest desire is the person, is God himself, it is his will and his mind. It, to gaze and inquire are not about what the Lord can give, but they are about the Lord himself. And that's his one ask. Not the gifts, but the giver himself. I mean, what a desire that he shows us in verse 4. What a request. What a thing to ask. If you were to be given the scenario that you can ask the Lord for one thing, you get to ask the Lord for anything, you can ask Him for just one thing, what would you ask for? What's that thing that comes to your mind when you say, hey, God will give you this one thing? What is your greatest desire? What comes to your mind? Perhaps it's just relational unity. Because all the strife is, is such a problem, it just really drags you down. So unity and peace. Maybe it's retirement. Get me out of my job so I can rest. Amen. Maybe it's kids. Maybe you've been longing for children and you're desiring a family. Maybe you want job satisfaction or a mountaintop experience where you're seeing the greatest sights that creation has to offer. Maybe it's something like forgiveness, like you've messed up so bad and I've left some assurance that I can be forgiven. Maybe it's that I could perform rightly before God and if I could just get my life straight in terms of how I'm living, that would be enough. Much of the things that we could think about when we get this one desire, if we could ask this one thing of the Lord, much of what we could think about would be good. And all of those things will say something about what our greatest desire truly is. But think about it. 
that thing that came to your mind, what is it or who is it? Is it a gift or is it the giver? I think for the church, for us, it's likely, in fact, I think probable, that our greatest sin struggle is not with desiring something that's inherently evil, but desiring something that's good and desiring it too much. Like our sin likely isn't desiring the opposite of God. Our sin is likely desiring something adjacent to God, near to God. But we desire it more than God. I think likely our sin struggle will be desiring and wanting a gift from God, a good gift over the giver himself. What do we seek? What do we most desire? Is it the giver or is it his gifts? Think of the faithful in the scripture and what they are after. It really is astounding. When you think about Abraham, God made him some great promises, gave him an inheritance, a land. And yet Hebrews 11 comes along and says, you know what Abraham was actually after? He was after a city. Not just the city, right? Its builder and maker was God. He's after this place where God is going to dwell with his people. That's what he really wants, God's presence. Or I think about Moses. Moses had seen so much. The power of God displayed. He led a people. Like he had all these great gifts from God that he was able to see and live in and walk in. And you know what he asked the Lord after the Lord had revealed himself and given him the law and all these things? You know what he asked? He says, show me your glory. He wants God. Paul comes along and he is saying, man, I have found something that's a, a surpassing treasure. It's beyond all other things that I've ever seen or imagined in my entire life. What is it? Knowing God, knowing Christ. He says everything else in comparison is rubbish compared to that one thing. I want God. He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's far better because I'm going to go be with Christ. And it's that word, those words there, far better that really get us. Because we might like the gifts pretty close to the amount that we like the giver. What were those people seeking? What was their one desire? It wasn't gifts. It wasn't a place. It wasn't a piece of information. It was God. Is that what we're after? Is, is that our greatest desire? Let me ask it this way. Would you be satisfied if you were offered eternal peace eternal health, the eternal company of all your family and friends, all the ones that you hold most dear, eternal even forgiveness, all of those things and more, and God's not there. Would you take it? Would you take all of that without God? And if there's a hesitation or the answer is yes, then here's what's true. Your greatest desire is not God himself. It's the gifts of God. Good gifts, family, forgiveness, like all those things are at peace, life, health, those are good gifts, but they're not God. So what are you seeking? What are you after? If we desire something more than God, then we've placed it over Him. If we desire something alongside God, then we find it just as good as Him. And if that's true of us, we desire the gifts and not just the giver. And so the question is that for us, like, we're here, we want to know how we can make this our greatest desire, how God can be our greatest desire, so how do we reorder things? We have all sorts of questions in our world today of thinking about, well, how do you reorder desires and things within your heart? Well, the, the scripture helps us. 
Like you can have this book that can help you, the anatomy of your soul get reordered the right way. Because we hear things like, well, the heart just wants what the heart wants, right? And you should just follow the heart. Like what good is it to work against it? You got to be true to your heart, right? Well, here's the good news is that your heart, all of our hearts were made to find their greatest satisfaction in the Lord. Our hearts were made to seek the Lord, to be satisfied by God alone, to find Him, not His gifts, Him Himself, God Himself, to find Him to be all satisfying and the most beautiful thing that we could ever find. Amen. And desiring and seeking other things is part of how we live because we have hearts that were desire, or designed to desire Him. Desiring other things, seeking other things are all present within us because we're made to desire and seek something satisfying and beautiful. But other things other than God, even though they're really good gifts, cannot be ultimately satisfying. All of their beauty will eventually fade. Seek beauty and you're going to find it really elusive, right? Not only do the cultural standards change, but your own standard. Like, you're going to find it like different things are just not working out. I can't figure out how to get ultimate beauty. You look for comfort, and you're going to find that comfort is very fleeting. It comes and it goes. You look for power or control or money or knowledge, and you're always going to find that it just never seems to be enough. There's always the next part of that out there, the next thing to go get and to go conquer. If you're looking for acceptance and approval and you think, there I'll find my satisfaction, you're going to find that that ground where you get that acceptance is really shaky ground. It can come and go. And even the best of things, the best of gifts are things that are going to change and fade and shake. They will not satisfy you. They are not ultimate beauty. We need a greater beauty. And David points the way. The Lord, he says, is my one desire. And I want to gaze upon his beauty. In other words, what he's saying to us is that the Lord is the greatest beauty, is the one thing to desire. God, this is the one who created all things out of the overflow of his goodness and grace and mercy and love. He creates all things. And from that greatness, we can see in his only creation itself that this is one who is so great that he is without rival. He spoke into that creation, revealing himself, who he is and what he's like, showing us that this is a God whose goodness is unparalleled. And not only did he create and speak, but he acts in this creation as well, showing us again, here's this God who's acting and redeeming and working and showing us that this is one whose graciousness is incomparable. And not only did he create and speak and reveal himself and act in this creation, but he took up residence in the midst of his people, showing us, and in his glory in the midst of his people, that here is one whose glory is unmatched, whose beauty cannot be described in human words rightly that is beyond compare. He is so great, church, that you do not need to fear other things. He is so powerful that you don't need to have power. He is so good that you don't need to look elsewhere for goodness. He is so gracious that you don't even need to prove yourself before him. He is so glorious that you could look and gaze, literally look and gaze upon his beauty for all eternity. You could literally inquire into his mind and his will and his character for all eternity and never get to the end of it. It's interesting, every view you get into heaven in the scripture that none of them are thinking, this is awesome, but man, Do you remember the Grand Canyon? I would like to look at that again. 
None of them. You know what they're doing? They're overwhelmed with the sight of the beauty of God. David, he, he points us not only to this greatest beauty, this greatest desire, but I think he gives us the how. How do we do this then? How do we make this our desire? I, I think these words help us. He says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Gaze and inquire. The, the good news of the Bible is that God shows us not just how to have and get gifts from him, but how to get him, how to have life with him how to gaze upon him and inquire in his temple. And, and when you do, here's what happens. In the Old Testament, in the New, what it's showing us is how you, a sinner, can be reconciled, can be brought near to God so that God and you could dwell together and you could have life with God under his good reign and his good rule, gazing upon his beauty, inquiring into his will and mind for all the days of your life. And think about the Old Testament. They, they, they had to have this law that revealed who God is, what he's like, his character and nature, and they had to have these sacrifices. All those things were pointing forward, but they were saying, you can have life with God. Here's how you do it. There's a way to be reconciled to God here and now. And then they're pointing forward to this New Testament to come, where, where there's this promised one coming, and what does he do? He shows us, here's how you can have life with God. Here's how you can be reconciled to God. It's through the death of this sacrifice, Jesus Christ. I, I love 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? What is the best news of the gospel, friends? That he might bring us to God. That we get God. Like the, the good news of the gospel is that we get forgiveness, we get peace with, with one another, but the best news of the gospel is that we get God. He brings us to God. And so if your desires are off and need to be reordered, the, the path that you need to take is to gaze upon the beauty of God, who he is and what he has done, inquire into these things, think through them, behold this God. Like the, well, I heard one pastor say that the, the most gracious uh, command in all the scripture is behold your God. Because we know God to be these things. This righteous one came for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And we behold and we inquire. This is the kind of gazing and inquiring that's not just a process to change, like start here and it'll lead you down the process. This is the kind of gazing and inquiring that'll change you on the spot. You gaze upon the beauty of God, it changes you on the spot. You inquire in the temple of the Lord in his presence and it changes you on the spot. So gaze and inquire. And for David, they weren't separated from what? Normal kinds of things, right? He was a Psalm 1 man What's the righteous person do? He meditates on the law day and night. So his gazing and inquiring aren't separate from the word revealing who God is and how to live. And for him, obviously, in Psalm 27, what's he doing? He's praying. He wasn't separated from giving myself to prayer. And he talks all about sacrifice and singing. There's worship there. Like, for him, gazing and inquiring weren't something like you've you got to go to the mountaintop in order to meditate long enough to get there. No, it's like you open up the scripture, you, you start praying, you're singing in the company of believers. Like, those are the kinds of things that change you on the spot, he says, because you're getting in that, the very presence of God. And so, man, on a Sunday morning, just remember that this could be here. We, we have the word of God in front of us. We're singing truths about who he is together. We're praying with one another. God is in our midst. Like we are beholding the glory and the beauty of God. We are inquiring into the presence of God right now. And that very thing can be the kinds of thing that reorders your desires. One author said that to behold and to inquire is the essence of worship. And get this, 
It's not an Old Testament thing, right? Indeed, he says it's the essence of discipleship. And if you have this one desire, here's where it moves toward in verse 5. He says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Notice that desire speaks into fear again. You, you can overcome distracting fears by an overwhelming desire, by seeking the Lord. Enemies are still present in verse 5 and 6. I thought that when we hit the mountaintop of verse 4 and then all of our desires were ordered rightly, then all of our problems would go away. No, but here's what does happen. All of those, when you have reordered desires and your desires for the Lord, all those things are still present, but now you can overcome them. All those distracting fears are overcome by this overwhelming desire for the Lord. Why? Why in the midst of this is there joy and praise when enemies are still present in verses 5 and 6? Because he says a few things. I'm hidden, I'm covered, I'm lifted. No, Lord, what's he's conveying? He's conveying that in God's presence, he's delivered, protected, victorious, completely satisfied. He has no needs. He has certainty. He has that confidence. And he has satisfaction. And what this does for David is it doesn't then lead him to a life of laxity, passivity, and complacency. In fact, you see quite the opposite come through for the rest of this psalm. In verse 7, he says... Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. I mean, when you read verses 4 through 6, didn't you think, like, he's done enough? Like, does he need to still be urgent with us? And he thinks, yeah, I have this desire. I feel satisfied. I'm going to do these things, verse 6. But he still prays. He still goes with urgency. He says, you have said, seek my face. Now, the Lord responds to this, and you've got to wonder... Did he say on the spot as David cries out? Did he respond on the spot? David, you're praying for these things and here's what I want to tell you. Seek my face. Maybe. I think the answer is actually likely, probably no. One of the reasons I think that is because the response is plural. David himself seems to singularly be crying out to God and God answers, he says, and he says, you guys, plural, Seek my face. Now, in prayer, he remembers. When he's crying out, he remembers. God has invited us into something. Seek my face. He recalls the Lord's invitation in his urgency for the Lord to respond. He recalls the Lord's invitation to seek his face. And he responds from his heart, from his inner being. Verse 8, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. He has a sense of certainty there, but he doesn't stop his praying. He wants to hold the Lord true to his promises. Never something that the Lord pushes off as something that he shouldn't be doing. Hide not your face from me. God just said he seek it. So he's not saying, are you going to hide it now? He's saying, let's be, be faithful to these things. I need help here. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not. O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. In a better way, I think, to translate verse 10, most commentators agree, is that though my mother and father have forsaken me. And we don't know that David's parents were bad parents and left him. 
And we think that more likely he's saying, though, as if uh, here's another scenario. Even if our parents, which would have been a, a horrendous thing for that culture, if they would have forsaken me, he says, but the Lord will take me in. You notice in these verses, there, there's a sense of urgency that has given way to a sense of certainty. He knows in the end, no matter what all might happen, the Lord will take me in. It's because the Lord who issued the invitation to seek His face that there's certainty that if I seek the face of the Lord, I'm going to end in verse 10. And he is going to take me and He's not going to forsake me. In other words, this is a, a, a God who's not going to say, seek me, and then He's going to hide from them. Right? My, my youngest is two years old. She's really started to like playing hide and seek now. She loves it. And when she plays hide and seek, it's obvious that she wants to be found. <laughs> right? Like, there's, there's certain ways, Sage, that you just like, yeah, I don't know if you get the game. Like, because I will seek after her, and she'll start making noises or say, I'm in here, or I'm over here. She wants to be found, but she still loves the game. Why? Because she loves to be sought. And how much does the Lord say? He's not just saying, I'm going to say, seek my face, and then I'm going to hide really well. Some of the older kids are getting better at that. Like, I'm like, I don't know where they are now. The Lord's not going to do that. Say, seek my face, and then like, we can't find him. He's going to say, seek my face, and he wants to be found. Like, he's inviting us to come find him, and he's not going to hide himself away where we can't get it. And so, the Lord, what does he do? He creates. That is an expression of who he is. Like, it, creation, Psalm 19, is displaying something to us. The, it is displaying the invisible attributes and divine nature of God. Is all saying something that God is God. Like, that is what creation is telling us. But again, he doesn't just create. He acts in the midst of his creation. Again, revealing his character and nature, what he's like, what he cares about. He speaks into that. All of that invite us to know God. And in the midst of all of that, he was even more clear when he says, seek my face. So what does God want? He wants to be known. He wants people to seek him. This is a God who wants to be found. He wants to be sought after, called upon, and he wants his presence to be known. This is all through the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 7, ask, seek, knock, right? You know that? Seek and you're going to find. Matthew chapter 11, come to me and I will give you rest. John chapter 6, whoever comes, I will never cast out. Or James chapter 4, Draw near to God, and what will happen? He will draw near to you. I could do this all day in the New Testament. This is a God who wants to be known. He wants to be found. You come to Him with sincerity and with a genuine heart. I want you, and you'll find Him. That's what we have confidence in. And so are we going to the Lord and saying, God, I want to know you? He's not going to ask us to seek Him and then do verse 9, hide His face, turn away, cast us off. So the obstacle then when we are invited to seek the Lord's face is not with the Lord playing a cruel game of hide and seek, but it's just our response to his invitation. That our response doesn't line up with David's response here, where he says, from his heart, from the core of his being, your face, Lord, do I seek. Because we're busy seeking other things and trying to be satisfied with things that won't satisfy Something that could never do verse 9, right? We're trying to be satisfied by things that will hide their face eventually, will turn away from us eventually, must cast us off eventually, forsake us eventually. We're seeking and desiring those things that can't give the help that we most need, 
that will, will forsake us at some time, either now or in the future. Those things that can never fully save us because they too will die just like us. And David is saying there's a better way. Reorder those disordered desires in your hearts by seeking the beauty and the greatness and the glory of God. Knowing that if you do, verse 10, the Lord will take you in. There is no other place you can go and be received eternally. There is no other place that you can take that can have a place for you in the midst of all your circumstances and fear. There is no other place you can go that can save you fully. But if you turn to the Lord and you seek his face, the Lord will take you in. This is the one to most desire and to seek after. He is the one to place all of our fullest confidence in. And again, David continues, and his confidence in the Lord doesn't lead him to passivity. Verse 11, he's not done. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. David's greatest desire, verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Don't say, you know what, that's, that's, that's the end of it there. No, he says, still teach me, lead me. Like the the desire for the presence of God in verse 4 lead to these realities and requests of teach and lead of verse 11. And while verse 4 is the greatest desire, there's still enemies present, right? Here we have enemies that are present. Like verses 2 and 3, now the enemies are back. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to my enemies. They're all back again. And in the midst of it, David prays and requests all these things with no less confidence than he did in verse 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, he's like, armies can come against me, I'm not afraid. Verses 11 and 12, he's calling out, teach me, lead me, give me not up unto them, but I don't think he does it with any less confidence than he did in verses 2 and 3 because we have verse 13. In the midst of these things going on, they're breathing out violence. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's saying, I believe that I'm going to be preserved and delivered and rescued. He's confident in this because he knows this is the Lord who is his light and his salvation, the stronghold of his life, and he doesn't need to be afraid of anything. And yet, and yet verses 11 and 12 are still there, right? He, he didn't stop asking. He didn't stop pleading God. He didn't stop praying. He still says, even though he has the confidence of verse 1, he still says, teach me, lead me, give me not up. Why does he do that? If you have confidence in the Lord, you know God's going to take care of things, then why do you pray those things? Because confidence in the Lord doesn't look like passivity or complacency or laxity. Confidence in the Lord means also a confidence in the ways of the Lord, the means of the Lord. And David clearly has a means in front of us in this very psalm, the means of prayer. And so his confidence in the Lord doesn't lead him to usurp prayer and just say, like, I'm good. No, confidence in the Lord leads him to pray to the Lord, to seek the Lord, to ask things of the Lord. There is no let go and let God in Psalm 27. Church, there is no let go and let God in all of the scripture. Like, instead, there's very much of trust God and get going all the time, all through the scripture, with a great confidence in the Lord that he's the deliverer, but I'm participating in this by obeying the very things that he has given me to obey and by using and making use of the means that he's given me to use. Like, here's what we do. We show and live out our confidence in the Lord by making use of the means that the Lord is giving, of praying to him and seeking his face. We shouldn't blur the lines of confidence in the Lord and confidence in praying, or confidence in the Lord and confidence in seeking. Now, those are vitally attached, but notice that they're not the same. Our, our greatest desire is for the Lord, and we use His means because they attach us vitally to Him, not because of the thing in and of itself. And you think about praying. 
praying and seeking, as David is calling for and modeling here for us, when they're right and when they're sincere, they are very things that by nature they pull us out of ourselves and finding confidence in the thing itself and to God. Like if you do prayer right, you're, you're actually finding everything in God. If you're seeking the Lord right, you're finding everything, not in the process or how you're doing it and the effort. You're finding it in God. Like in the very act of praying, God, deliver me, teach me, lead me. David's saying, I need help. And it's only coming from you, God. I, I love this quote from one author who says on prayer, the act of praying itself is a kind of dying. Does it feel like that? For some of you, it might feel like that in different ways, but like it is an act of dying where you give up your self-will to make things happen and go to God with a collective help us. The initial feeling of prayer is dying to self because praying is an act of the will, a decision, decision to shut down your activity and open the door to God's activity. Like the nature of praying and seeking in and of itself should never be blurred with God himself because here's what it does. It pulls you out of yourself and opens you up to him. So its very nature is working against that. And here's what the prayer is saying. Like, let's shut down to ourselves and open up to God's activity in us and through us. And finally, for David, he does that. And he gives himself to these means and he has confidence in the Lord and it leads him to end and overflow with an exhortation to the community of believers when he says, verse 14... Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, when I hear verse 14, this says, wait for the Lord. And then he repeats. It's like most of the time when you repeat things, especially poetically, it's like there's some emphasis here. And waiting seems like a strange emphasis, doesn't it? But here again, we find an activity that's not passive. Waiting is not a passive thing. It's actually part of us exercising confidence in the Lord. It's part of us seeking the Lord, desiring the Lord. It's part of us living out active trust in the Lord, waiting. It's active, not in its doing and all the activities that it does. It's active in its receiving, in its being, in its trusting, in its looking to and seeking of God himself. It's the kind of activity that, that David says needs to be strong and courageous. Did you get a little bit, like, that was strange for me when I read that. Wait for the Lord, be strong and courageous, go desire, go kill the enemy. Be strong and courageous, like, go tell the people that they need to repent. Like, no, at the end of that, after strong and courageous, I would never have placed that word wait. And yet David says, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your hearts take courage. And, and what do we need that strength and courage for? Waiting. That is so interesting. He doesn't say, wait for an answer. He doesn't say, wait for deliverance. He says, wait for the Lord. That's the posture of the faithful. It's gifts over, or giver over the gifts. Amen. We're waiting on Him. What we really want is Him. What we're really after is Him. That's to be the posture. That's the posture of waiting. It's the posture of those who are confident in the Lord, who most desire the Lord. This is a posture that the New Testament doesn't come along and say, you know what, about waiting. The king has come, so don't wait anymore. It doesn't push it away. You look in Romans chapter 8. Here's what it says. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, by our trust in Christ, being united to Him by faith, He gives us this gift of the Spirit, and we groan inwardly as we wait. And we wait eagerly 
for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Or in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, hey, we're citizens of heaven, and by the way, of heaven, we're awaiting a savior from that very place. So we should be those, as those who trust and have confidence in our Lord, those who wait. But we wait with confidence. We wait with great hope. Knowing, verse 13, that if we trust in this Lord, that we shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That that will be true for us because we know of this one who came down and went to the land of the dying and didn't stay, but rose again in power. We should have confidence in the Lord, knowing that because that one came to the land of the dying and rose again from death, because he conquered death, that if we're in him, you look back at verse 6 and you think, this is us. The head, our head, who is lifted up above every single enemy. And you can be attached to the head by being united to him by faith. And, and he is the one who's lifted up above all the enemies around him. He is the one who offered up his life as a sacrifice that we can come to him and offer up the sacrifice of our very lives as a praise to God, as a way to honor and glorify God and sing and make melody. And if we offer up our lives to him, then that is what we will do. We will, in the end, get our greatest desire. We will get him and we will get him eternally. And so, if that's true of us, then he should be our greatest confidence the way to overcome all fear in our life. He can be our greatest desire and we can know that if he's our greatest desire because he conquered death, that we're going to get what we want and what will not be let down for eternity. Let's put our hope in that and wait for the Lord. Indeed, let's wait for the Lord. Would you pray with me? pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to reveal where our deepest confidences are lying. We ask for you to be our light. We confess to you that we are not in control and we often have built our houses on fleeting foundations like earthly ideas of success or health or career relationships. So we want to take the truth of who you are to our weak houses. You are the stronghold and you answer our biggest fears, our fears of failure and pain and discomfort, loneliness. You are bigger than all of them. So make our hearts say the same thing the psalmist requested that our one thing would be you and you alone. Not your gifts, which are very, very good, God, but the giver. Help us to gaze upon your beauty. Help us to inquire who you are and seek each day in your revealed word to know you better. Not to go to your word to try to earn some sort of favor. We know that you don't play hide and seek with us. When we come to you, you will give us rest. 
when all of our counterfeit substitutes rob us of these very things we're seeking. Keep teaching us and growing us in the midst of our enemies as we long for the day of full and final deliverance. And until then, God, we will wait and take courage. We will wait for you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.